Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. Our guest on the podcast today is an emergency physician. In this conversation, she explores the idea that healthcare can do so much for people, even before they reach the emergency department. With a particular interest in sepsis, her advocacy work has made an enormous difference to patients with that condition. Here to tell her story is Dr. Karen Molander. Karen, you're very welcome to this call. I'm delighted to welcome you to the Health Design Podcast. I really appreciate the opportunity that you're giving me to explain why it's so important for me to be here today. I'm from a a very large family of nine kids. I'm number seven of nine. And when I was five years old, my mom was pregnant with my youngest sister. And if you can only imagine a mom of eight running the house, she probably ignored her own health quite a bit. And she became sick with a urinary tract infection that then seeded her heart valve and caused endocarditis. So she was hospitalized while she was pregnant with my sister. And I understood very little about what was going on. I just knew that mom was gone for months on end and didn't really have an understanding of everything that was going on. And my little sister came home before my mom. And My mom had open heart surgery and had a metallic heart valve placed, an artificial heart valve. And she was, I think, around 43 years old at that time. And unfortunately, dealt with the challenges of taking blood thinners at that time. You only had one type of blood thinner available that is notoriously challenging to keep the blood thin at the right level. So she was sick a good portion of her remaining 20 years that I was lucky enough to have her in my life. And she would periodically have strokes. The youngest, or I was eight when she had a massive stroke that paralyzed her on half her body and remember having to help nurse her back to health. And grew up in a very religious family. You might've figured out it was a Catholic family with nine kids. And so, of course, I spent a fair amount of my time beseeching God to keep her healthy and then got a little exasperated when she kept getting ill again. And when she was in uh, the hospital for Mother's Day when I was 10, I decided at that point in time I was going to become a doctor, you know, to, to keep her healthy. And also because I saw much so much promise in making people better. And really enjoyed study all through high school and college. Had nobody in my family in the medical field. So I would pepper whomever I met in the medical field and ask them if I could shadow them for a day. Would start medical interest groups at my high school and my college and just pretty much wanted to make absolutely sure before I went into six figure that, that this was really what I wanted to do. And then was lucky enough to go to a small liberal arts school in the middle of Wisconsin and got early acceptance in medical school as a sophomore in college, pending that I actually kept decent grades, called the Angstrom Scholar. And that allowed me to explore journalism a little bit more and get out of the science building. 
So my background's in both biology and journalism. And then when my mom fell ill again, when I was a junior in college, I realized how much I did not know and became terrified of the thought of going into medicine and just felt like I wasn't smart enough. So instead, I, I took two years off at Abbott Laboratories in the States. And then while I was working there, I started volunteering in the emergency department every Sunday and found that I got such joy from helping people that I decided I would go through the whole process of going to medical school again and decided that I would do emergency medicine because I joke around that I have the attention span of a fruit fly and I liked the variety. I liked the adrenaline rush of the emergency department. And oftentimes we can see how our impact is affecting the individual quite quickly. So that's very rewarding. You see someone come in with something called a nursemaid's elbow, you can quickly correct it and you see a child smiling and using both arms again. I think that emergency medicine has been a lovely career for me. It's been so rewarding. I was lucky enough to leave the Midwest and come out to sunny California to do my residency program. And man, February is so much more pleasant out here typically than in the Midwest. So I've had a very lovely career in emergency medicine and have seen it go through just tremendous changes over the past almost 30 years that I've been practicing and definitely saw the, the challenges that we faced as we had this beautiful concept of an electronic health record that was allowing us to collate all this information but it was pulling us away from the bedside. And we were not being able to spend as much time as I would prefer with my patients. And it was interesting as I've gone through my career, some of these diagnoses can be so challenging and it can be the most random fact that you get out of the patient that helps bring you to your answer. And so one of the hashtags that you'll sometimes see me use on decipher your health is hashtag back to the bedside, because I do find that to be such a valuable thing. And during the pandemic, it was tough. We no longer had family members at the bedside to help advocate for their loved ones. There was, despite the best efforts of telemedicine, the language barriers, the challenges that we would have with elderly patients who might be confused and could not convey their story well, and all of the restrictions that we faced where we could no longer have a family member at the bedside. And it became such a challenge involving multiple phone calls to try and do our best by the patient. So I found that extremely frustrating. And that was part of the reason why I started working on this project with a dear friend of mine, Marika, on Decipher Your Health. And the whole goal with Decipher Your Health and Marika was to help patients and their families figure out how to navigate the healthcare system effectively. And I think one of the theories that have been purported about is medicine 1.0, medicine 2.0 versus medicine 
And now we're seeing that it's going from institutions holding that medical knowledge to involving the patient in the medical decision-making and the patient's families. And seeing that they can be such a valuable part of the treatment team because there is no one who knows themselves better than the patient themselves and their family members. And I think oftentimes medicine is filled with quite a bit of hubris to believe that that they can figure out how to manage a patient without involving the patient more extensively in the plan of care. I want to pick up on a couple of things that you said there. First of all, it's very nice to hear the backstory because that helps a lot. I'm so sorry about what happened to your mom. This must, be, must have been harrowing as a child to see her become so ill. And to hear that that was your inspiration to do medicine is heartwarming. The other thing that I noted was your involvement in journalism, or at least your training in journalism. Now, we hear this a lot with our guests, and I want to make this point again, that for many of us doctors, it's not just that we are doctors, but we have an interest in the arts. And somehow, the two things seem to come together in our careers, either later on or or even early in the careers, where we become very creative by virtue of our interest in the arts. And the other thing was this hashtag back to bedside. I love that concept because that's essentially where perhaps we should take this conversation next, talking about what it is that families contribute to the care of their loved ones. As an emergency physician, you're seeing people whose physiology has changed. Essentially, the the data is there all on a machine. Blood pressure's dropped, their pulse has gone up, or their temperature's rising, or their blood work suggests a particular problem. And yet you are making a very good point, and that is the family have to be involved, even at that point in the journey. Do you want to say a little bit about that? Why do you think that makes such a difference? Unfortunately, in the emergency department, I'm oftentimes seeing patients and their families when they're not at their best. And they cannot communicate effectively what their issues are, what their complaints are, and or how they normally behave. So, for example, if someone is diagnosed with dementia, there are plenty of highly functioning patients who have been given a diagnosis of dementia that are still capable of carrying on a conversation, folding the laundry, taking the dog for a walk. However, there are also people with dementia that are quite debilitated. And too quickly, we might be apt to label someone with dementia when in reality, they are suffering from a horrible urinary tract infection that's making them very confused. And by having the family member there to communicate, no, this is a very extreme change in my loved one's behavior. That is vital. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and metal health. That's a great point that you're talking about the difference between dementia and delirium. The minute you label somebody as having cognitive impairment that's permanent, suddenly they no longer seem to matter. They become invisible in the system and everything is done to them rather than with them and for them. 
And as you say, family being really important in those situations. So I guess what we're saying is that it's not just about the machines going ping. It's about the story behind it, the context in which the person is coming. Exactly. It is extremely gratifying to have had such an incredible career in emergency medicine. However, it's also challenging to see that I'm fixing people after they're broken. And as we were talking about a little bit earlier, I think we need to focus on trying to keep people healthy, to have patients more invested in their health care, to have them understand those data points that we're collecting, why a heart rate monitor might be valuable for them if they're feeling an irregular heartbeat once in a while. Maybe it is time to invest in a wearable device so that they can see what's going on. And the other issue is food as medicine. Rather than having people focus on taking a higher dose of their insulin for their diabetes, maybe we can focus on modification of their diet to see if we can help prevent some of those glucose spikes. It is so heartening to hear an emergency physician talk in these terms Because for us, people who are not involved in emergency medicine, you imagine that what you are in the business of is simply fixing what's broken. And you're so busy doing that that you're not thinking about what might have brought the person to you in the first place. And yet here you are talking about prevention. Where did that thought come to you in your career? One of the challenges is that Sometimes it appears like there's been such a push in my medical training. I I don't know if you remember in the early 90s, we were pushed to make pain and the whole pain scale, the fifth vital sign rather than pulse oximetry. Don't ask me why. But I had to undergo mandatory training in the state of California that would make sure that I addressed patients' pain complaints. And if it was over a certain number, that narcotics were administered within a short time period. And the exasperation that some of us felt as we were being pushed to promote pharmaceuticals where we had seen it not result in the best of conditions in the patient, It might make them increasingly confused if they had a hip fracture and were already dealing with cognitive impairment. They might try and get up and walk because they were no longer feeling their pain. So definitely seeing that sometimes trying to administer additional medications when in reality, if we could try and prevent those falls from happening, for example trying to educate families on how to keep their home safe to prevent that elderly patient from fracturing that hip, how to make sure that they use hearing aids so that they can slow their cognitive decline so that they are more involved in conversations with family members, how to make sure that their eyeglass prescription is up to date so that they can interact with their environment better and read if they so desire to try and slow that cognitive decline. All of these wish list things that I would see over the course of my 25 plus years in emergency medicine that I would think, wow, if I were quote unquote king for the day, you know, what would I do? This is a fascinating 
turn in our conversation. It's not something I was expecting to hear from an emergency physician. Healthcare at the moment appears at its best when you've had a road traffic accident and you're brought in with broken bones, low blood pressure, and the team are all, we've all seen it on television, you've seen it on House and other places where, you know, the team is all around and someone's shouting orders about various parameters that are measured on all these whiz-bang machines and the patient goes from dying to the intensive care ward and then eventually are seen hobbling out of hospital on crutches. That's the way we picture medicine. The problem is, once the patient is discharged from hospital, the whole system seems to fall down because suddenly chronic illness, long-term illness, is no longer regarded as being as sexy to medicine. And all that we seem to do is prescribe. Yes. So in the United States, we have a law called EMTALA, which says that if a patient shows up in your emergency department, you are required by law to stabilize and treat the patient regardless of ability to pay. And I think that's one of the beautiful honors that I have in emergency medicine is that I am not expecting that insurance card to pop out before I start taking care of a patient. I want to focus on the patient and focus on the high quality care. In reality, it's tough on some of these patients when they leave the hospital. The number one cause of bankruptcy in the United States of America is healthcare bills. I saw that in my own family. In the 70s here, if you had a pre-existing condition in the 70s and the 80s, you could not get that pre-existing coverage for a health condition. So unfortunately, even though my mother had health insurance, both of the health insurance providers decided that this pre-existing condition was not covered. So we were not able to pay her medical bills until she passed away with her life insurance policy. And that's just sad. We should not be putting patients into such tremendous debt trying to stay healthy. The problem with that is when patients fall into debt and they suffer more, it's society in general that's impoverished by that fact. Suddenly that woman who is looking after those children is no longer able to do that. And exactly. the weight of all of that falls on the taxpayer, whether if that's how we want to frame things in life. And the taxpayer are her family and her friends who have to step in to do the needful. It does take a community sometimes. I had plenty of days where my whole neighborhood was helping manage my large family as my mother recovered from illness. And I I think that the importance of community cannot be stressed enough. One of the other areas of interest that I've had for many years is sepsis. And part of that is because of my mother's experience with sepsis when I was five from endocarditis, which had a mortality rate of 100% prior to antibiotics. Thank goodness it's much better now. And then having my own experience with sepsis when I was pregnant with my oldest child and having him get rushed off to the NICU, neonatal intensive care unit for those of you out there. And I hear all these stories from patients then experiencing it from my own viewpoint as a patient, even though I was a physician and 
having my concerns be minimized as a, a new mother being told that, oh, it couldn't be an issue. It, so I definitely, my heart goes out to all those young parents who feel like their providers aren't listening. And then also in just dealing with it as a provider, you see it all the time. And in the U.S., we have definitely pushed to try and improve sepsis management because it's the most expensive cost to our healthcare system, number one cost for inpatient hospitalizations in the U.S. One out of three patients with sepsis who are hospitalized end up dying. So it's a number one in terms of mortality there as well. And the challenge that I found as I was exploring optimizing sepsis care is seeing how challenging it is when it's early in the sepsis management, it is quite difficult to diagnose because it can present so differently, and yet it can be easily treated with the appropriate antimicrobial. And then when it's definitely easy to diagnose, when you see that septic shock patient in front of you with the low blood pressure and the blue extremities, that's when it's difficult to treat because you need to add those vasopressors, you need to have multiple antimicrobials on board, and your mortality rate is so high. And in the United States, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid really pushed for standardization of sepsis bundles. So I got involved in that process early in 2007 and have been on that road for a long time in my hospital system, but felt like we weren't doing enough. So I started volunteering in my community trying to explain to patients and families and paramedics what sepsis was, what the signs and symptoms to watch out would be, and the importance of presenting quickly to their care provider, because 80% of cases of sepsis happen in the community. So it was important to make sure that we would be sepsis ready at our hospitals. And that's how I was lucky enough to meet Marika my partner on Decipher Your Health, because she's one of our medical writers for Sepsis Alliance, and I was one of the volunteers there, so I was lucky enough to meet her there. And I just finished my responsibilities as chair of Sepsis Alliance, so that's what made Marika and I jump into working on Decipher Your Health. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, Amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. Marika has also been a guest on our show. We would encourage people to hear her bit of the conversation as well, because she reflects all that you talk about the importance of having family on board, the importance of getting the clear message about early treatment of sepsis, just as you've described it. How has that work progressed for you? Do you feel that you're making an impression on the management of sepsis in the community? You know, I am so lucky. I was fortunate enough to have these fantastic paramedics that I work with. And one of them asked me if I wanted to present some of the work that I was doing on sepsis to their journal club. And that kind of morphed into doing more presentations for more journal clubs. And then 
during the pandemic, Sepsis Alliance felt this strong urge to pivot because they were finding that education possibilities were really limited. So we jumped online as soon as we could. If you look back, I did a community education video on what COVID was back in March of 2020. <laughs> and we started working on creating educational modules for free for paramedics, for physical therapists, for home health nurses, for various members of the clinical community to help optimize the care of the patient with sepsis. And it was a really great experience. And I was fortunate enough that one of the national groups, the NAEMT, so it's, uh, I think, the National Academy of Emergency Medical Technicians, asked me if I would co-write a chapter on sepsis for paramedics in the United States. So we just did our second edition of that chapter. So that has been definitely a labor of love. And I'm hoping we're making a difference in, in sending our messages out there. In terms of the emergency medicine side of things, are you seeing any improvement in patients coming earlier than the point at which they've got into septic shock? When I started at my hospital on the sepsis projects back in 2007, our mortality was approaching 40%. And with the, you know, I always would joke around team make, teamwork makes the dream work. Because oftentimes in medicine, we're so siloed. We think our responsibilities end at the doorway and as we pass off to the next individual. And the challenges with sepsis is the management can evolve over hours. And what I found worked most effectively was letting every member of the team know how the patient did. Because so often in emergency medicine, when someone goes off to the intensive care unit or goes off to the floor, we don't know what happened to them after they left. And I found that that really helped with people understanding. And when I pass the baton off to the next person to run our sepsis committee, we had managed to push our mortality rate down to 7.4%. And this was all due to the incredible teamwork of so many individuals. And I think one of the really important things in medicine is recognizing the value that each member provides, whether it be the person from environmental services who's doing a great job cleaning the room that the patient is going into, or telling you if someone looks a little bit like they're confused and pulls you into the room versus the nurse getting the IV rapidly versus the lab tech running the tests quickly. It, it involves so many people. We used to show Formula F1 car and show all the people around the car and how they each contributed one different piece to the management of that sepsis patient in the middle just trying to say we're all trying to make that patient like the Formula One car a fine running machine and we need everyone to participate in the care. And I think that that really helped. I had so many people who, who played such a critical role there. Karen Molander, you're a very rare physician. You talk about partnerships. You talk about partnerships with patients and the team, not just your team, but the team around you. You talk about empowering 
patients and their families. You've touched on the social determinants of health, although we didn't use that term in terms of prevention. You're a born healer, and we're very proud to have brought you to our listeners. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com. Thank you.